I can pretty much play any song on the piano from memory in any key and, and sing it. And so I'm, I'm, I'm a, I think if I, if the hedge fund thing doesn't work out, I'm going to play piano in a piano bar. <laughs> if you want to stand out from the crowd, it requires a unique approach to life and business. An approach that is aligned with your personality and that goes against the herd or the trend. At times, it will expose you and make you vulnerable to the public, and at times, it will make you look like a hero. Deep down, it's about being a contrarian. And that's what we're talking about in today's episode of Top Traders Unplugged. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, where my goal is to give you the clarity, confidence and courage you need to invest like or invest with one of the top traders in the world. It is the stories that you never get to hear set out as the most honest and transparent account that I can make of what goes on inside the minds of some of the best investors in the world delivered to you via a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Today you're listening to episode 45. If this is the first episode you've heard, you might want to go back and listen to all the earlier conversations. Before we go any further, let's find out who's on today's show. I'm Roy Niederhofer. I'm the founder and president of RG Niederhofer Capital Management, and I'm here today on Top Traders Unplugged. Thanks for doing that, Roy. And by the way, if you want to read a full transcript of today's episode, just visit the Top Traders Unplugged website where you can find great details from today's conversation. Now let's get started with part one of my conversation. I hope you will enjoy it. Roy, thank you so much for uh, being with us today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Nils. I'm ha really happy to be part of this. Great stuff. Roy, as you know, people who stands out tend to get noticed. And I think that many people who are involved in the hedge fund or CTA industry is familiar with you and, and your firm, but perhaps not all the unique sides and talents that you have. So I think today will be you know, great for the audience. There are some unique stories that, uh, that we can share. But before we go to your story, I wanted to ask you a, a slightly different question, a question that I sometimes struggle with answering myself. And It goes something along this way. Imagine that you meet someone that you haven't met before and you start talking and suddenly they ask you, so Roy, tell me what you do. How do you respond? How do you explain what you do? Niels, the strategy that we employ has a very specific intent, which may distinguish it from many, many other things out there. We are trying to combine both interesting standalone returns with very, very consistent downside protection for people's portfolios 
in equities, traditional investments overall, and also alternatives. What we try to do is maintain a consistent negative correlation to equities. In other words, we do better than, than average when equities are having trouble, when there's a lot of volatility, typically when portfolios that most people have are having their toughest times. And our strategy is actually tuned not to maximize our own sharp ratio, to not to maximize our own risk-adjusted return, but actually to maximize the risk-adjusted return of our clients. Absolutely. Now, before we jump to sort of the, the bigger question, I want to I wanna stay with you as a person for a while. I want to allow you to tell your story, perhaps not just how you got into the business, but really sort of going back as far as you feel comfortable and, you know, share with us uh, what were you like as a, as a kid and, and what drove you to the path that you took in life, so to speak? Sure. I, I guess that the, my path that led me to where I am today began with a very early interest in computers and programming. When I was 13, after a year of begging, I got a, a computer, a, a, an old uh, Radio Shack <laughs> TRS-80, one Great. of the first uh, microcomputers for present. And I immediately set out to uh, teach myself to program, and I did. And I decided that because I didn't want to feed quarters into an arcade machine, I wanted to make my own version of the old arcade game Space Invaders, right. which you may remember, Sure. which is what I did. And I realized that that might be something that other people wanted to, uh, wanted to have as well. So I started a little company, and that company eventually took me to the point by the end of high school where we had about 30 employees wow. and I and my three other partners, I added a few partners at that uh, along the way, uh, we all paid our way through school and had cars and <laughs> lived a rather, uh, it, you know, it was a small change compared sure. to now, but for a bunch of 16 and 17 year olds, we were, uh, we, we were surprisingly successful, I guess you could say. And sure. along the way, we, we, and you know, my own experience was that I taught myself to program in a very efficient way because you're dealing with memory limitations that you you literally had 2,000 bytes in some cases <laughs> to write a program and mm. 16,000 was a luxury, bytes. Yeah. yeah. So it forced me to become a very efficient programmer. That skill then served me very well um, over the summers. I was also doing some work for my brother, Victor, who was <laughs> a very early entrant into the hedge fund space. Victor was there the first day that equity futures began and actually was a participant in the first equity futures trade. He was on the floor Wow! and very quickly realized that there were patterns in the intraday price data that were observable and quantifiable. So I began working there when I was in high school and then all the way through college as an intern. And I um, was really exposed to futures trading in my early teens and all the way through. Wow. While I was in college, I had a bit of a deviation from that path, though. I, I decided that a very interesting problem was the question of how the human brain works. <laughs> and I spent my uh, undergraduate years uh, studying neuroscience and particularly uh, since I'm a bit of a musician, as we may get into a bit later, sure. um, I, uh, I was very interested in the differences between musicians' brains and non-musicians' brains to see whether there are any uh, 
observable patterns that made one's appreciation for music different uh, if, if you've had a lot of training. And of course, the great finding of neuroscience is that the structure of the human brain is has a tremendous influence on human behavior, that we are essentially products of our hardware. And that actually is an, an insight that I've taken with me into the trading side. When I graduated from Harvard in 1987, I really had this choice whether I was going to go into the field of neuroscience and continue. And I was all set to go to Cambridge. They admitted me, but I didn't have enough money to go. Sure. So I went to work for my brother back in New York. And it was 1987 and <laughs> just before the market crash. And it was really easy to be long equities and make money because that's what everyone had done for five years. Yeah. And I started trading in the summer and fortunately not equities, but fixed income, uh, some, uh, short term strategies that I'd already developed even in the first few months. Okay. And I was off to the races for me, uh, in 87. So while I was at my brother's, I, I met, first of all, he had an incredible team there. Um, already I had met, uh, Monroe Trout, who, uh, was there for a couple of years before I was. Sure. And, uh, many of the people that, have uh, successful short-term trading firms. We're also there at the same time. Um, Steve Wisdom and Paul Beefy, who are now part of Crable's operation, sure. and then Toby himself was there for a while, um, and uh, and many others along the way who've gone on to great success. So it was a tremendous mentoring experience for all of us. And I really had the idea early on that there was an institutional version of this that we could develop. So we tried to do it in-house, but um, it turned out that the vision that I had didn't seem to be exactly the way that my brother wanted to go. So in 1992, I left and I, uh, I formed R.G. Niederhofer Capital Management. And that was, uh, that was the beginnings. We began trading in 93, in July. And since then, if you look at our pitch book from early part of 1993, it's very much the same thing that we do right now. We've continue to try to distinguish the firm in a very particular niche of providing not just diversifying, but truly protective returns that really benefit a portfolio. And to do that by avoiding trend following, being in the short-term space, capturing realized volatility, the very, the very same things that I'll tell an investor today. Sure, absolutely. Um... I wanted just to ask you a little bit about sort of how the brain works. I think we could all learn a little bit from that. I mean, what are sort of the things that you took away from that? And maybe you can somehow come up with some examples that you find fascinating or interesting from our day-to-day -day life in terms of these cognitive biases, and then perhaps draw the distinction as to how the brain works. And I, I hope I'm right here when it comes to trading, which I I have a feeling it's not quite the same. I have a feeling that we react slightly differently when it comes to trading decisions relative to day-to-day -day decisions. Am I on the right track here? Yes, you are exactly. I think the key to the human brain and how it influences behavior is that the human brain, for the most part, has evolved to solve the problems that existed during the time and in the place where the human brain evolved, which is, of course, for the last many hundreds of thousands of years, almost exclusively on the African savanna. So the behaviors that we have in the brain, the tendencies, the way our visual system works, 
everything is there to keep our keep us alive and keep our genes reproducing. Right. However, those behavior patterns are not going to be optimal for investing. And that's why so many investors, especially those who trade discretionarily, run into trouble. If you follow your instincts, you're following instincts that are not optimized for investing and keeping you profitable. They're not there to keep you profitable trading dollar Swiss. They're there to keep you alive and free of predators and <laughs> and able to be re- able to reproduce and find food. Those are the those are what your instincts sure. are there to do. Sure. So there there are there are a number of ways that one can uh, can cap can first avoid falling prey to these emotions and then capture the tendencies that other people have. Yeah. Some of the some of the ideas that we find very interesting are things like risk aversion. People hate to lose more than they love to win. Mm-hmm. So certain strategies appear to be more appealing mm-hmm. than they otherwise would because it's very smart and will tend to increase the probability that your genes will propagate if you are risk averse in Africa when mm. you're surviving predators. It's good to run more than you don't, you know, it, it, being a contrarian when the lion is stalking the herd <laughs> is not a particularly good strategy. Sure. So, and the, the same thing goes for some of the economic cognitive biases that people have. It, th- something you have is typically worth more in the state of nature, but it turns out that that's not true. And it is in fact a, a well-known cognitive bias. They always say that uh, people hate to lose about twice as much as they love to win. And as a result, there's a certain appeal that strategies have that incorporate that notion that may or may not be optimal in, in a, a full-fledged invasion strategy. So that's one, mm-hmm. the, uh, the endowment bias, you might call it. Mm-hmm. Um, another bias that we all have, we all fall prey to is the consensus bias that we get we we love to stampede with the herd and sure. it's very very hard to be a contrarian emotionally yeah another bias we have which is very well known is that we remember recent information more than past information so uh, a market move that occurred today or yesterday is th- seared into our memory but the same market move that occurred three tuesdays ago might not be so so important to us in our decision making today Again, very much based on the idea that in the state of nature, the current environment is actually a pretty good predictor of what's going to happen next. Mm -hmm. That is not true in financial markets. Mm -hmm. And finally, another bias that's very important, um, I think, to try to avoid one-one trades and something that we really try to capture is a tendency for people to see visual patterns in data. Mm -hmm. One thing my brother really taught us all was to avoid uh, using charts. He was a tremendous opponent of any sort of charting whatsoever. Right. And my view on why charts are not so helpful is that your brain wants to see patterns that aren't there. Again, sure. very helpful to find patterns in, uh, maybe you'll spot a predator if your brain is in, in the grass, if it's camouflaged, sure. if your brain is good at seeing patterns. But if you see too many patterns in the data, you, you almost see too many and you make decisions that are not statistically based. So mm. we want to make decisions based on probabilities rather than on our belief in visual patterns that may or may not actually be predictive. Mm. So one thing we've tried to do is avoid the traditional methods of visual pattern recognition that people have used in technical analysis. Mm. So there are some examples of, of cognitive sure. biases sure. and how. So, I mean, in, in a sense, what you're saying is that actually human beings as just normal human beings are actually terrible investors. That's right. 
Yeah. Unless unless you take tremendous pain to <laughs> avoid falling prey to these cognitive biases. Sure. Now, a lot of people will ask me, well, what about systematic strategies? Wouldn't isn't the point of a systematic strategy to avoid cognitive biases and and doesn't it by definition avoid the emotional kind of response that might be suboptimal, like selling at the worst possible time because your stomach hurts. Sure. Well, a computer stomach doesn't hurt, obviously. <laughs> so um, one would think that a systematic strategy would be immune to that. But it turns out that it's not. Mm. People tend to have the same cognitive biases when they create and then actually use systematic strategies, quantitative strategies, that they do when they trade discretion early. For example, they tend to overuse recent performance in deciding whether to use systematic strategies. Mm. And obviously investors tend to do that when they invest in systematic strategies. Yeah. There have been some great research pieces that have been published showing that the most common evaluative tool, which is the last two years of Sharpe ratio, is completely unpredictive in CTAs of the next few years of uh, performance. Sure. But that's probably the most common thing that people use. So when you're using a quant strategy, if your strategy has a lousy sharp for two years, well, it's very tempting to get rid of that strategy. Mm -hmm. But it turns out that that generally will not be helpful in actually boosting your achieved sharp ratio. Mm -hmm. And you can also have things like this, in the, the, uh, the tendency of people to favor, to, to hate to lose more than they love to win will create incentives to use certain kinds of strategies and not others. For example, when people get jobs as prop traders using quant or discretionary strategies, typically they have a very tight loss limit. Well, what this means is that when you join a prop shop, you're typically not going to be able to use a strategy that's going to make money one month in six, but make a huge amount of money and lose money five months out of six. Sure. Because you'll hit your stop. So it sort of it uh, induces a short vol approach where you're more likely to have a profit. And then, of course, all together, again, the idea is you people, firm owners, traders hate to lose more than they love to win. Mm -hmm. They're afraid to take losses. And as a result, everyone gets short volatility. And the firm itself can have a very big short vol vulnerability. I believe that one of the reasons why many multi-strat funds have the tendency to lose significantly during big periods of illiquidity and volatility is this very factor. If people are truly diversified, a year like 2008 shouldn't have been as bad as it was for a lot of diversified strategies. And I think we're going to see that again after the last five years. Sure. No, I don't disagree with that at all. Now, um, in, in a sense, I know you're not, you know, a, a trend following the classical uh, sense at all. But I mean, in a sense, what you just said there, is this the reason why trend following, despite having been around for 40, more, more than 40 years, at least with, you know, track records, um, and actually for most of these people, uh, having done pretty well compared with so many other things, but it's never really been accepted. I mean, is it really down to that bias that people have against the fact that trend following is a bit, you know, volatile and probably will lose money eight months out of 12 and so on and so forth? I think that has something to do with it. I, I think there's been a, a difficulty in explaining trend following, why it should work. Um, everyone knows that, or I should put knows in big quotation marks, sure. that stocks rally and that companies get better over time at producing earnings and therefore there should be this upward bias in equities. Mm. But 
it's not quite so obvious why there should be a tendency of a market move once it's established itself to continue in that same direction. And I think, in fairness, we all in the CTA world have been uh, a little bit lax in providing the fundamental explanations for why the strategy should work. In my case, we've really gone in a different direction from most CTAs. And I always say that our, our correlation to CTAs, which has been about 0.1 historically, makes us more different from CTAs than CTAs are from hedge funds and equities and you know, pretty much everything else out there. Sure. But we certainly trade the same things that most CTAs trade. We also face the difficulty of explaining what it is that we're actually doing if we're not just capturing the idea that risk is on, that, that stocks go up over time, that people are overestimate the chance of loss and therefore it's good to be short volatility and that there's a carry in, in the, because of the positive shape of the yield curve. I think uh, one, of the, one, one, of, one of the simplifying assumptions of the hedge fund world is that hedge funds are long equity, short volatility, and long the height of the yield curve. In other words, a, a, an interest rate carry trade. Sure. And without those three trades, you don't have much hedge fund performance. Hmm. Well, it's easy to simplify CTAs into markets trend and that, and if it's if there's a big trend in the big markets, then CTAs make money. Of course, there are strategies such as the short-term world that we're in, and uh, and I believe us in particular, even compared to the short-term world, that are quite different in that respect uh, from from the existing status uh, yeah. top your strategy. Yeah, no, I agree. Now, before we, we we go too far away from from your story, I just wanted to go back and, and ask you mentioned yourself that quite a lot of famous uh, traders have come from your brother's firm originally. What do you think it was that Victor taught you or what was so special about the environment that you were in at the time that actually has produced so many people who became successful in their own right? I think one of the things he he really emphasized was taking a very scientific approach mm-hmm. to to what one was doing, to not just believe things because everyone else believed them, and that was the traditional way that one had done it and, and, and learned to do it. There was a lot of things, especially back then, that were just assent, uh, accepted as conventional wisdom that I think in retrospect turned out to be almost like articles of faith um, that... Elliott Wave, for example, is that, sure. to me, um, it's almost like numerology. It doesn't really have a predictive value that I can identify that. I don't think anyone's ever shown it scientifically. And if you then have to prove that something has statistical significance, you immediately have, you have to have a testable hypothesis and a falsifiable hypothesis. And mm. so beginning, that number one, I would say, a scientific approach to the data rather than a uh, almost a religious approach to the data. Number two, I think there was a tremendous emphasis on not following the status quo, right. on not doing it the same way everybody else did it. So immediately you avoid the popular trades and having to deal with 10 other or 1,000 other people doing exactly the same thing you're doing at exactly the same time. Mm. And because typically providing liquidity to the majority is a very good thing to be doing, you immediately start with a strategy that has a, uh, a positive expected return. I think looking at intraday data was something that we that was uh, unusual at sure. the time. It's certainly a lot, e- a lot easier right now. <laughs> yeah. And I think there was a certain encouragement of 
diversity and of uh, innovation that a lot of firms, I think, they have a, a very clear philosophy. And if you deviate from that philosophy, you're gone. He really did encourage a lot of people to explore and just create almost in the way that some of the, the tech firms, let's say you're supposed yeah, to spend sure. 30% of your time doing, doing your own stuff and sure. your own creative work. Well, he really let us do that too. Yeah. Interesting. Very interesting. Um, now you mentioned that you sort of started your own firm back in 1993 and I did a little bit of research on you, Roy, and, uh, I understand that that was sort of done, uh, back in your own apartment, but I've been told by uh, reliable sources that you had to employ a cook and a maid in the beginning. Do you know <laughs> what I'm referring to here? I do. Yes. We, uh, <laughs> We started the business, uh, my head trader, Paul Shen, who's still with me, and we had one other person doing marketing um, very early, and then my wife was also uh, uh, part of it back then. Yeah. And uh, it, was a, it was a very fancy uh, co-op that we were subletting for a very inexpensive amount of money, but when we started to get a lot of messengers and FedEx and <laughs> people coming in, eventually they said, well, either you go, we're evicting you, if the business doesn't go. So this all occurred on my honeymoon. Oh. So I tried to convince them that my head trader, Paul, was my cook and that, <laughs> that, that Jill, the, uh, the uh, marketing person, was my maid. And then how could they not let them in? But that, didn't, uh, that did not fly, unfortunately. So <laughs> we, uh, we ended up going across the street to uh, 8887 7th Avenue, which is uh, the building that uh, Soros and Ackman are in right now. But we oh. were there. Uh, that was our, about six months in. We had a pretty good-sized office there that... We got a great deal. It was three bucks a square foot for an office, which is about just to calibrate about one twentieth of what it or one fiftieth of what it costs now. Wow, <laughs> amazing! Yeah, that's a great story. Thanks for sharing. Now, of course, you know, running your firm today is a big part of your life. But when you're not working, and I think we might get into this, you know, a little bit later as well in a different way. But but when you're not working, what do you like spending your time doing? And the Running a uh, quant strategy and having a fairly robust operation with a couple dozen people, it, it does allow me a little bit of liberty to explore uh, some other interests and to be more of a, a top-down manager rather than to have to put in every trade. Sure. So it does give me some time to do that. And I've really tried to, over the years, continue some of my outside interests, which are uh, things like uh, being a, a musician. I play in a, an orchestra called the Park Avenue Chamber Symphony, which I'm in the violin section, and we uh, have gone from... It, it literally started uh, in my apartment as me and the conductor <laughs> playing duo piano things, and eventually we, we've played in Carnegie Hall four times and Avery wow. Fisher, and we have, I think, won the uh, prize for the best non-professional orchestra in America four times in a row. So Fantastic. we're... Uh, where we've done reasonably well, and uh, and I do a lot of other instruments too. I play piano and uh, guitar, and uh, took up steel drum recently, saxophone, and so there's a lot of music in my life. And sure, I'm, just, I'm, I'm scheduling a big chamber music reading in my house for this Sunday to give you an example of that wow. too. Wow! So uh, and I, I've tried to do some uh, make a difference in the world as well. I uh, I chair a philanthropy called the Harmony Program, mm -hmm. which gives intensive music education, uh, 10 hours a week of instrumental music education to New York City public school kids and really changes their lives. It's, it's four years from second to fifth grade. And these kids are really just doing incredible things. And there are a couple hundred of them now and we're expanding rapidly. 
And I'm also very involved in, uh, in the project to, to bring back the New York City Opera after it went bankrupt last October. So I have a lot going on. And, a lot going on, yeah. But I guess the biggest thing that I do, my biggest responsibility is my family. I sure. have four beautiful kids, uh, 17, 14, 3, and 1. And wow. I spend a lot of time with them. And they are, they are really my pride and joy. Yeah, absolutely. Fantastic. Thank you very much for, for, for sharing that. I want to go to the next kind of topic, but before I do so, I want to ask you a, a much broader question because we've been in the low interest rate environment for, for a long time now, and we've even been in the declining interest rate environment for, for decades. Um, so I think everyone agrees at some point, you know, they're going to start to rise. Maybe we don't know quite uh, yet that's going to happen, but it will happen. And some of the guests that I've had on, uh, who comes more from the trend-following side, um, you know, there's been a bit of debate about how will CTAs do in general when interest rates start to rise again. And of course, many of the conclusions uh, that I've seen says, you know, they should be doing okay. But in true spirit to your sort of contrarian approach, I also think <laughs> you have a slightly different conclusion to this. So maybe you can talk about... Uh, without being too technical, you know, we, we have a wide uh, audience here, but without being too technical, maybe you talk a little bit about why you might have a different opinion about how CTAs might perform in a, in a rising interest rate environment. Sure. I, I think there's really two, two facets of, of my view on this topic. The first is what will happen to performance, and the second is what will happen to the traditional protective role that CTAs have, have played, or at least right. trend followers have played. Right. And I should be very clear, I'm referring, I'm, I'm referring to the industry as a global, as an asset class. Sure. When people are talking about the new age CTA index, the 200 billion, most of that is in longer term trend following. Sure. So here, when, when I say CTAs, I'm using it as an, as a term for the industry, not any particular CTA. Sure. The, the view that I have is that, first of all, the, the greatest contributor to CTA success over the last 25 years has been fixed income, and more specifically, long fixed income. The tremendous decline in interest rates has been a big factor in that. And I always left it at that until I actually tried to dissect out the price change in the futures contract that came from being long in long something in a declining rate environment that would rise because of a declining interest rate like say the 10 year or the 30 year futures and then being long something with a positive roll yield now of course for the last 25 years just about all the time the, the yield curve has been positively sloping averaging about 3% per year mm. so it turns out that when you actually run the numbers Two-thirds of the profits of being long the 10-year, the 30-year, have actually come from the roll yield, not the actual decline in interest rates. Mm. So the question that I tried to answer is, okay, well, what would happen if interest rates start to rise? And we happened to do our study, which was that we literally ran time in reverse and said, what would happen if rates over the next 25 years just tick right back up to where they were in 1990? Sure. So we reversed the futures contract, you could say. And what we found 
is that while it would seem as though, oh, you'd just be short the futures contract and you make the same amount of money, because of this roll yield problem, it doesn't work that way. The roll yield is negative if you're short fixed income, not positive, as long as that yield curve continues to be positively sloping. Mm. So that two-thirds of your profits that you made on the way down in interest rates for the last 25 years are now negative, not positive. Mm. So the amazing thing, and this was really a kind of a shocker for me, is that the price of the 10-year futures goes up, not down if interest rates rise to where they were in 1990. Now, of course, most people, they want when interest rates rise, futures contracts go down. <laughs> Not because of the rule yield. So this is a real problem. Because instead of having this beautiful, smooth uptrend where you have the decline in interest rates and the rule yields all going in the same direction, well, you're, if you're short, you've got the direction of interest rates correct. So the contract wants sure. to go down, sure. but the problem is the roll yield forces the contract actually to go up. And this destroys the trend. You can't trend follow in fixed income on the short side. It just doesn't work. Sure. So now you have the question, well, okay, if two thirds of the, or half or whatever the number is of profits of fixed income for CTAs came from being long fixed income, and now this is going to not work, well, what is going to work? Mm. So that is my argument in a nutshell, we have a big white paper on this and it you know, takes 26 pages or something <laughs> to go through this argument. So if, if I seem to have skipped a few steps, I apologize. But that's really the gist of it. No, that's what fine. do you do? What, what, what do you do? So and I, I, there are a few answers. The first is you've got to look elsewhere. And sure. a lot of people say, well, okay, if interest rates are rising, there should be some inflation somewhere. Commodities will go up. In the 70s, you can make a lot of money in commodities if you were a big trader. Because that's what the markets were. They were mostly commodity markets. Of course, being a big trader meant you had 20 million under management. <laughs> now, if you got 20 billion or 100 billion or the summation of all of the trend following CTAs out there, which is probably a quarter of a trillion plus all the people that are doing it internally or at macro and multi stretch sure. shots, it could be three quarters of a trillion dollars that trend following sure. when all is said and done among all the different strategies. Well, Compare that to the size of the commodity markets. The commodity markets are 1%, 5%, 3% of the size of the financial futures markets. They're really small. So I just don't think commodities are going to be big enough to support profits, even if there are trends in commodities. So that's, that's one question. Well, sure. If not commodities, then where else? What about the equity market? Well, equities go up over time. So I think this is an explanation for why we've seen a lot of morphing of CTAs into multi-strad, into whatever they call themselves, quant, global, macro. But what's happened is the correlation of the CTA index has increased to equities. Mm. People are getting long equities. They're not, I don't think, bi-directional. They're just seeing, well, stocks go up over time. This is a great place to be. And to support the growth of the industry in any sort of environment, you've got to be long equities. So the larger managers, I think, are going to be pushed in that direction. And we've already heard of some that are doing it already. And then the final piece is FX. If anything is going to provide the driver of returns for CTAs in a rising rate environment, it's going to be the FX markets. They're liquid enough. Mm. They are, they are uh, volatile enough. They are diverse enough. 
in at least in Euro in the uh, the Euro time zone in Asia sure. and even in emerging in some cases for some of the managers who are small and able to do those emerging markets. So it, the burden is going to come on the FX market. Mm. So as an industry, we have to make money in the FX market. Sure. I mean, you point out some really, really interesting uh, observations, and 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 I would encourage. You know, there are some of the people that uh, have already been on 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 the podcast and who have different views. I encourage them to put in some comments into uh, the show notes for this episode, where they can challenge some of these things because I think that's good debate. But I think what it highlights to me from what you're saying is uh, some disturbing trends, really, because. What's happening, in my opinion, in the industry, uh, and what's is in particular in the last four or five years, is of course that investors tend to prefer the large managers. So we have a massive concentration of capital with the large managers. But what you're really saying is that if this comes through, what you really need to do is to find smaller managers who can actually get a meaningful allocation to some of the markets that are not fixed income related, such as commodities and so on and so forth. But, you know, we're seeing so many small managers um, not being able to survive this environment um, because investors prefer large managers. So for me, at least, that's a slightly disturbing trend. But I also wanted to pick up on something else you said. And it's a little bit about the correlation to the uh, S&P and how more and more CTAs look like they're more correlated towards um, um, equities. I think that's, a, I mean, that is a true statement. You can certainly prove that in the numbers. But I'm just wondering here, Roy, I mean, isn't it normal that CTAs would become more correlated to equities in a period where we've had a bull market for five years and where, by definition, long-term trend followers have to be long? Right. I think there, there's no question that that's what's worked the managers that have made money have been the ones that have put in that high correlation to equities for the most part. As part of my discussion of interest rates, the correlation actually is, is an important piece of it too. And I, I alluded to it earlier with the question of will CTAs be as protective as they have right. been. And my view on this is something that I've been talking about for, for pretty much my whole career. <laughs> I believe that the protective quality of CTAs that people have seen in events like long-term capital's demise or 9-11 or even uh, more recently in some of the equity sell-offs in, say, November 2008 uh, is the last big example. A lot of that came from being long fixed income. Sure. And the reason that people were able to be long fixed income in the CTA world was that we're in this tremendous secular uptrend in fixed income, of course, the big secular decline in interest rates. Yeah. The question then is, well, what happens if we don't get as much of that big uptrend and rates start going up? Clearly, the mar as I mentioned before, the contract isn't, the future sure, contracts sure. aren't going to rally as often as much. So it will be harder for CTAs to be as consistently long fixed income as they have been yeah. in the past. Now, if you start off a equity shock short fixed income, mm. that's not going to go well, because obviously in a flight to quality, you're now short what everybody wants, which mm. is the safety of fixed income. I think October 15th was a perfect example of that, where in the midst of a fairly small equity decline, we just had the largest rally in uh, the 30-year bond sure. contract since the market crash of 87, it went up, or second largest, yeah. it went up six points in yeah. intraday, and it only went up seven in the um, crash of 87. So. Mm. This is a real problem if you're going to start that day short. 
and have a tendency to be more short fixed income. Mm. So my, my point is, I believe the correlation of CTAs will secularly shift, not in the absence of any other change in strategy, just because you're spending more time short fixed income than you were long fixed income in the big decline in interest rates. Mm. So that, that's a question. I also believe that what we are seeing is not just that stocks are going up and CTAs are following the trend. I believe that there are a few managers who are actually moving into pure long strategies. Sure. Just like long short equity is really long equity. We see that in, in the hedge fund indices that long short <laughs> equity has, you know, 0.86 daily correlation to the equity markets, I yeah. think, this year. Um, that's also true of CTAs. When you get into the equities, unless you're a short-term trader, you've got to be on the long side. You just can't sell and hold. So if you're using a longer-term strategy, you're going to end up with a rising correlation to equities. And I think what happened in October, what happened in January of this year, these little equity sell-offs, demonstrates that even today, there's already not as much protection as people are going to expect from CTAs having gotten in 2002 and even at the very end of 08. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Roy, when I look at CTAs and hedge fund strategies in general, I, I, I kind of see them positioning themselves to a large degree um, as a standalone investment. But you've already alluded to it. But when I look at your program and when I look at your marketing message, it's really about you know, a story about how you shouldn't really look at your program in, in, in terms of a standalone investment. You should look at it, how it works and how it helps in combination with an existing portfolios of stocks and bonds, for example. Tell right. me, tell me, tell me why you chose this specific approach, um, which is different, I mean, to, to uh, how most uh, firms position themselves for better or for worse we have chosen to tune our strategy to maximize our benefit to our clients rather than to ourselves and that i guess boils down to my belief that people should be paid by on the basis of alpha not on beta i it's rare to hear me agreeing with pimka with sorry with <laughs> the calpers but uh i i think they're absolutely right that a lot of the hedge fund community gets paid on beta and you just see what happens in 2008 to have the, even this year to have what happened in October occur where you had a, the hedge fund industry was point, over 0.86. I think it was 0.87 weekly correlated to the stock market mm. this year and just about that last year. Well, how much beta can you possibly produce? You have to produce incredible performance with that kind of correlation. And very, very few people do. Sure. So. What we've tried to do is maximize the alpha that we provide. And the, the strategy from the top down is designed to have this negative correlation to equities and to hedge funds and essentially to any type of portfolio that we see from a client to maximize the amount of alpha that we provide. Mm -hmm. And it's been a, a bit of a quixotic quest, I know, because when everybody else is making money, sure. very often we'll stand out at the bottom. But at the same time, that's why our best years, if you look at our track record, our best years are 08, 2000 to 02, 98, 94, some of the 
sell-offs in 97, 2011. We had huge performance in January of this year, in, in the first two couple of weeks of October when there was this big sell-off. That's what we are specializing in. And to me, that's what a hedge fund is supposed to do. That's what a manager is supposed to do to really provide not just we don't lose money when the rest of your portfolio is losing, but we help you make money. Now, why is that important? The reason it's important is that if you can reduce the size of the portfolio of your portfolio's drawdown, when you get back on a positive environment, you start the next positive cycle at a much higher level. So the amazing thing is if you take our strategy and the, and the equity markets at a 50-50 mix, just exactly sure, sure. equal concentration, the combined return of us plus the equities is actually higher than the return of either us or equities. Mm -hmm. It's a complete mathematical paradox. And the, and the reason is that negatively correlated assets tend to meld together and work in, in harmony in a way that people are, not, are, are generally not used to seeing because it's so rare to have positive expectation, negatively correlated assets. Mm -hmm. And you get about a 20% boost in performance out of nowhere from, you know, let's say two assets averaging 8%, suddenly your, uh, your combined portfolio averages 10%. And sure. that, how can that be? But in fact, that's what the negative correlation does. And that's why it's so important to have people focusing on portfolio improvement rather than on their own standalone sharp ratio. Sure. To focus on your standalone sharp ratio, all you got to do is add beta and it improves your sharp ratio until the equity market sells off. I mean, I completely take that point on board. Um, and I, I know you, you certainly you mentioned here specifically that you you distinguish, distinguish yourself from the hedge fund industry. And, and that I, I fully understand with the beta argument. What about the managed futures industry? Do you see yourself being, you know, an outlier or outsider there? Because it's a little bit confusing, I think, for some investors because they, they, they think of managed futures and certainly think of trend following as also being a protective element in their portfolio. Now, we know that, okay, it's not going to happen maybe the first week or the second week of a big turnaround in the markets because these strategies will take a little bit of time to, to turn. But clearly, as 2008 come along and, and the moves were significant, then CTAs in general and trend followers and so on and so forth did deliver some uh, you know negative correlated uh, returns but but how do you see yourself within that category i think there there's two questions there the first is how we distinguish ourselves from other ctas let's sure. say and even in the short term space are we how are we different from other short term managers and then the other question is how much protection do ctas provide and when um, i'll try to answer both of those in sure. in, in turn I think what makes us unusual, I don't want to say unique because I don't really know. You know the, la the last person that anybody tells what they're doing to is Roy Niederhocker. So right. <laughs> I, I don't really, uh, I don't have too much intimate knowledge of what other managers do. But sure, fair point. My impression is that what we talk about, about maintaining negative correlation year in, year out, and at least on a quantitative basis, our weekly correlation to the stock market really has been negative every single year for the last 15 years to the equity markets. And that's not true of pretty much every manager I've seen. Um, so I'd say our, our continual focus on maximizing the sharp ratio of our clients by providing both positive expectation and negative correlation at the same time makes us unique. Mm. 
the short-term strategies in be, to begin with will have a much higher, a, a much greater relationship to realize volatility than they do to trend. The ideal environment for a trend follower is, of course, a very quiet market that goes straight in one direction for years. For a short-term manager, the ideal market could be completely flat over the course of the year, but moving up and down 4% every other day. Sure. So that's a very different, quote, ideal environment. And I think just being a short-term manager, and for, for us, there's a lot, I think, maybe much more contrarian ideas in our approach than in most of the short-term managers. Again, from what I understand, we've always described ourselves as as majority contrarian rather than majority momentum or primarily or exclusively momentum of various time periods. Mm. So so that I think that's a difference as well. Now, I hope that gives it some sort of sense of the of the first uh, sure. first side of your question. The second part of your question was more about, you know, eventually CTAs do manage to provide protection. That is definitely true. My view on it is you have to look very closely at the numbers and what what they mean. CTAs were not very productive in portfolios during the first part of the decline off of the highs of 2007 sure. and through, say, September of 2008. At the very end of the year, the trend started to happen in fixed income in a big way. A lot of managers caught up. And actually, the same thing happened in 2000. There was a lot of profits at the very end of the big decline. But as of August, September, October, it was only some of the short-term managers who were up significantly after the stock market had really corrected. Mm. Why is it important though? It turns out that a lot of the damage in equity market corrections occurs very, very rapidly and on a very small number of days. We have an interesting study that we, we just did that we took the biggest equity declines of the last 10 years and we said, how much of those declines occurred and that 10 largest days of each downdraft, and you know, those include a good chunk of 08 and you know, big corrections along the way. Sure. Um, actually, sorry, it was more than 10 years, about 15 or 20 years of equity decline. What we found is that, in general, more than 100% of the decline occurs in the 10 worst days of the decline, going back as far as you want. Okay. So what that means is if you can protect your portfolio on those big days, you actually have a huge benefit to your overall portfolio because the next upward cycle, whatever the big, whether it's a big decline in equities or this or a small one, the next cycle begins at a much higher NAV. So it's my view that different types of protection, some long-term protection, sure. okay, eventually you'll get fixed, long fixed income and great, you'll, you'll make money on, on the long side there in a huge equity decline. But there are also the 10% declines, the 5% declines that occur much, much more frequently. And if you have a strategy that's able to make money, say, let's say the first two weeks of October of this year, when stocks drop 7 or 8%, if you have a strategy that's up 5 or 10% in those two weeks, well, your whole portfolio begins the next leg up at a much higher level. And so long as that protective strategy is actually earning you money itself and po providing a positive return, the combination has an incredibly positive impact on return. I don't think too many people look at their portfolios in that way. A lot of allocation decisions are made in an all-star team way. You just want the best manager on a standalone basis. And I think even in sports, we often see that 
the best teams are not the best combinations of the best individual players. Right. No, no. I mean, I completely buy into that. Uh, and, and I think the, 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 the truth is that uh, investors in these strategies really need to understand the role of each manager in the portfolio. And clearly, someone like yourself, you're not only just diversifying against equities and bonds, you're also diversifying against other CTAs, if we call it that. Um, and likewise, they will diversify against your approach and, and it all has to work together. So, so exactly. I agree with that. I, I think one of, the, one of the interesting pieces of, in, in, interesting characteristics of the short-term space is that the inter-manager correlation of the short-term space is maybe 0.1 or 0.2 on a monthly basis. Mm. I don't think there's an asset class in the world where you will find an inter-manager correlation of anywhere near zero except short-term traders in managed futures. Mm. Long-term traders in managed futures are all 0.5, 0.7 correlation to each other or more. Certainly in event-driven, we just saw a big deal break in October and 90% of the world's event-driven managers appear to have had that one deal and all got crushed in, you know, down 5% because of that one deal. Yeah. It doesn't mean that these are bad managers at all. And that was a great deal. And they all should have had it because it was a very likely deal to close. But you do have the same risk factors. That is not really as true for short-term traders. If there's one factor that seems to drive short-term trader returns, it's realized volatility, however, because that's really your opportunity set. And what's very interesting, we you alluded to this earlier, the fact that the secular decline in interest rates may be ending as QE ends in the U.S. Quantitative easing has had a tremendous suppressing effect on realized volatility across every market. If you look this summer, you'll find all four sectors pretty much at all-time lows of volatility and combined, I would say, at all-time lows of combined volatility. Sure. Suddenly, with the end of QE in the U.S., everything exploded in volatility and We've noticed that over the last few months, there's been a complete sea change and that our whole strategy has started to work pretty much better than it's ever worked before in our whole history. And I believe that we are going to face over the next few years an environment where volatility is going to, to rise rather than fall. And that's going to throw a lot of portfolios that have been created based on the last five years of returns, which is typically what people use out of whack because they're tuned to short volatility and declining volatility. It's very, very important for people to be proactive in looking at portfolios and saying, holy cow, what happens if volatility rises and I have all these managers chosen because they've made money in a short volatility environment, yeah. in a long volatility environment? I think, I mean, uh, uh, very important, uh, absolutely, Roy. And I would actually add to that that I had a guest on a couple of weeks ago, Catherine Kaminsky, who just wrote this book, uh, you know, Trend Following Will Manage Futures. But more importantly, we did speak quite a lot about also the distinction between long, short volatility and, you know, compressed volatility and expanded volatility, but actually just convergent and divergent strategies that people don't necessarily, you know, trend following is not necessarily just long volatility, it's just long divergent strategies. And people need to understand and appreciate the difference uh, between, you know, convergent and divergent strategies, uh, because it will, of course, uh, change after such a long period of of time with, uh, you know, massive controls and interventions. Now, sure. Roy, we could speak about these things uh, forever, <laughs> uh, but I, I do want to try and move on. Um, I want you just to paint the 
brief overview of the strategies that you run today. Just very briefly, uh, I think we're obviously going to be spending most of our time talking about your largest program, but I do want to offer you just the opportunity just to say, this is what we do today, and, and then we'll jump on to the to the next topic. Sure. We, we are employing a core strategy that has a number of different timeframes, ranging from a few minutes at its shortest to a few weeks at its longest, both momentum and counter-trend contrarian signals, all of, which, all of which is done systematically. And we have about 60 or 70 individual strategies that we put into, you might call them style buckets, we call them families, and, and the whole thing runs essentially automatically. I like to say in the way that an aircraft flies, that's the way our strategy works, where most of the time the aircraft is on autopilot and does a great job of flying itself. Every once in a while, it's necessary for the pilot to step in and in the most difficult moments, like landing the plane, that's a very, very important time for the pilot to be at the controls. But 99% of your flight is automated. That's what we do for all of our different programs. And it's the same set of models. Now, as you've heard, we have tuned our core strategy to have this negative correlation to equities, to hedge funds, and to portfolios in general. That is our diversified program. That is the same program that I would have been talking to you about 22 years ago if you were thinking of being one of my first investors. And it has remained our flagship product. We haven't changed it. Obviously, you can improve your results retrospectively sure. by changing your flagship. We have not done that. Um, but that strategy is supposed to have about a minus 0.3 to minus 0.4 correlation to the equity market. Sure. We decided a few years ago to say, well, what would happen if we just brought that up to zero? And part of the, the intent of it was that I needed, being so negatively correlated in my <laughs> business, I needed more long, some risk on. Sure. So we brought it up to zero and we created something called the Optimal Alpha Program. And this is a program that has, in the last couple of years, as you imagine, outperformed, diversified, had, sure. has had two good years the last couple of years. But Optimal Alpha is about, uh, I was plus 25 last year, and actually it's a, just over 25 this year too right now. And the reason is it doesn't try to be negatively correlated. Mm. In a portfolio, however, both of them produce about the same amount of alpha. So it's pretty interesting that our alpha is consistent. The, the performance can be very different. But in terms of alpha, yeah, there is a little bit more long equity risk in the Optimal Alpha program. To me, it seems like it's massively risk-on, but it actually is zero <laughs> correlated to the equity market. To sure. me, that's risk-on. Sure. Um, and then we have another program called iHedge. iHedge is a program that is, again, reflecting one of my own portfolio needs, was I, I decided I was very concerned about inflation a few years ago um, and that we'd have rising interest rates and rising commodity prices. Now, obviously, I was completely wrong about sure. that macro sure, sure. call. But I, I wanted to have it some, some of my own money invested in. So I created this fund called iHedge, which shifts the emphasis of our program so that we have more buying of commodities and more selling of uh, fixed income. Now, getting back to what we said before about the not wanting to be secularly short fixed income in a negative carry environment, I want to emphasize that short-term managers are much less susceptible to this carry trade on the short side. So short-term managers can get short fixed income and not have to worry too much about paying the cost of being short. 
So while this fund does spend much more time on the short side, because that's what sure. that's its mandate, sure. it's not securely short, but it'll spend a few days more short than diversified would be when diversified is short. Sure. We also let our clients switch back and forth among these funds. Once they're in our fund complex, they don't have to redeem and, and then go in a different fund and lose the high watermark. They can sure. actually switch on just 24 to 48 hours notice. So what this means is that people get to express individual portfolio views. So with that in mind, we've now extended this and we actually have an SMA where a client has actually requested a, a custom correlation, a particular essentially hedge to the rest of their strategy. And we can provide a targeted correlation even lower than our normal minus 0.3, minus 0.4. We can go to minus 0.6 or minus 0.7, or we can even get to say plus 0.3, which is that 50-50 mix of us and equities, which has had tremendous performance. And we may even offer that as a product too. Now, as I said, I want to shift gear on you and go into sort of more the uh, the different sort of overall topics that uh, I try to cover with with all my guests. And then the first one is really about sort of organization. And, you know, clearly you run, uh, you know, as a short term manager, you have uh, other uh, needs and constraints to to longer term uh, managers. So tell me a little bit about how your business is, is set up today and, and what the uh, the uh, infrastructure uh, looks like in order to handle that and and also of some interest uh, to me uh, at least is in the short term space i mean are you able to take advantage of any of the sort of outsourcing um, opportunities that that uh, has been developed or are you really reliant on having to do everything in house because you're you know obviously trading with a very high volume the The infrastructure that we've developed has had 22 years to coalesce. Um, so everything we do here is our own code that we've written. We, we Our platform is generally in C++. And everything from our top-down allocation tools to decide how much we're going to do of each piece of our strategy and when we're going to do it, down to the algos that we do to execute our code, Everything is developed here and is run out of this one office. Mm. I do run three shifts. Uh, you have to have people flying the plane essentially sure. 24-7 sure. while sure. the markets are open. And so we have about uh, two dozen people here. Almost all of them are on the, the investment side. There's probably 13 or 14 these days. Uh, people who are, let's call them quants, they're all programmers, very, very good programmers. They've all work the overnight shifts. They've all run the strategy, essentially flown the plane. I keep getting back to that. Because <laughs> no, that's fine. It's I, a good I analogy. It, I think it's very important if you're going to design an autopilot system or design a component for an aircraft that you've actually know how to fly. Sure. And, you know, some of the some of the questions and, and issues you have flying a plane are, are therefore in built into the autopilot. And that same thing analogously is true with our strategy that the issues that one has in trading are built into the platform, the tools that we use, and the algos that we use. Yeah. The, the, the firm is really not so much, we, we don't have to do very much to actually trade. 
signals come up, they're sent directly to the markets, and everything really pretty much does it, it operates by itself. So what most of my people are doing are working on how to make the strategy better, working on risk management, working on new ideas, making old ideas improved, or perhaps deciding that we're not going to do certain things that we have done for a while. So a lot of it is offline, very, very creative, almost, I, 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 I like to think of it very much the way, say, a, a scientific research lab would work in a university, where you have a, a professor who has a lot, to, a lot of suggestions and tools at his disposal, but in reality, it's the grad students who are providing the creative experiments and actually doing the coding and actually running the, 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 the testing hypotheses. Sure. So sure. It, it works very much in the way that I, I had some experience back in university doing research in uh, neuroscience. Sure. I noticed on your uh, organization chart that you refer to uh, your research team as research and trading, which obviously is somewhat expend, uh, explained by, by what you just said. Um, but I wanted to ask you a slightly different question. That is, what do you look for if you want to add another person to that team? Well, what are the things that, that you look for in, in, in the people that you, uh, that you look to add to this uh, very important part of your business? I've had a lot of experience now over the course of time in how to hire, what kinds of people have been successful, what kinds of people have been not successful. And I, I guess the first the first uh, admission is that it's very difficult. It's, sure. it's very, very hard to find truly profitable, successful traders, both on the discretionary side and in other organizations. I've seen pe other people have this issue and in our side. It, it's a very challenging problem. So in, to try to solve that problem, we really want creative, out-of-the-box thinkers. We don't want people that are just going to produce the same kind of ideas that we already have produced, that are, that are constantly going to try to make incremental improvements that are merely adding complexity and extra variables and fitting the data better than anyone else has ever fit the data before. That's not particularly helpful because it doesn't generalize. It's not a robust way to, to, uh, to operate. We're looking for people that are able to produce negatively correlated strategies, zero correlated strategies, to say, you know what, the way you guys are doing it, it's, why don't you try it this way and, and really have a, a, a world-changing insights, if we can, or at least uh, game-changing insights in, uh, to, to help us really make course corrections and improvements that are significant and valuable. So, and to do that, a lot of our interview process is creativity. We're, we're looking for people who are willing to think, to think differently and who are not, um, let's call it uh, status quo thinkers, that don't just quote the conventional wisdom on everything, that walk in here with really interesting new ideas. Do you think people like that, I mean, do they need to, by heart, be contrarian? I mean, you, do, you describe yourself as contrarian um, in probably all you know, in, in not just in trading, but but in in many respects, do these people also need to have that um, personality, or is it more the creative side rather than the wanting to be you know contrarian? If I use that word, uh, uh, contrarian is a funny word. I think people who are not afraid to challenge the status quo yeah. are, are is very important to me. We I do not want a lot of people who are just sitting around the research 
meaning agree, nodding their head and saying, wow, what a great idea, Roy. That's the, that's the <laughs> last thing that I want. Sure. And very often it's not quite so, so obvious at the beginning who's going to have the strength to, um, to really challenge the, the existing uh, paradigms that we have. And sometimes I've been very surprised. It's not necessarily who has the, the most advanced computing skills or who has the, the, the largest number of uh, statistical uh, uh, graduate level courses on their resume or who interviewed well and was able to solve our puzzles the best. There's, cert there's a certain personality strength that we've found has been most, uh, has been particularly helpful in, um, in, in really improving things over time. One of the things that I've always treasured about my head trader, Paul, is that he has been a tremendous foil for me over the years. And we really have a very, a, a very, I think, successful interaction in that it's not that we disagree on everything, but Paul has a, a certain intellectual purity where in our modeling and in our uh, dis discussions of our strategy, he has a very, uh, almost a theoretical view that is a, a great foil to my own. And I think when, we've, when we're looking for new people, we're looking for people who also are able to uh, think about the theory of model creation and the questions one should and could ask and how you... and the value of adding variables and some of these more methodological issues rather than just having the, uh, the, the latest intricacy of, say, support vector machine uh, kernels in, at their disposal. People can learn that, but they, what the, is much harder for them to do is actually to learn to have useful and game-changing ideas in, our op in, in an operation like ours. Sure. I mean... Part of what you what you're saying there to me is also about, you know, building a culture that allows people to, you know, constructively criticize. I mean, we've heard stories from some of the very large hedge funds about cultures where brutal honesty and and what have you, everything gets recorded, so nothing can be changed, and all of these things. But 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 sitting in a research meeting and and saying to you, you know, the owner of the firm. Roy, I think you're wrong. I mean, it takes courage. Um, exactly. So, so maybe so courage you, is a good word to describe. Sure. It. So, so how I, do you how do you build a culture that allows to, people to be to 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 have that courage? We have to trust people. Yeah, that, that's one thing. I, I have to trust what we do and letting people know about it. So, for example, in our trading room, everybody sees the P and L in real time. Everybody sees the positions in real time. Everybody can drill that and say this model and this particular person is responsible for it and here's what it's doing and so it's a very open culture our researchers our IT team our people that are running the strategy executing it are all on the same big trading floor and there's no distinction we don't have people in a back room doing secret research that no one can know <laughs> about and there there are firms that operate very successfully that way i don't want to sure, minimize sure. No. that there are a lot of potential answers to solving this problem to, to this particular question. But our answer has been if everybody is helping each other and really educating each other, people feel like they do have the confidence to ask the dumb questions and say, Hey, you know, maybe we should do it this way. Have you ever thought about that? And mm. the, uh, and if you have, if you in an environment where you're not going to get shot down and, you know, have for showing somebody up that maybe they, there is a better way to do it. I, I think we get more of those interesting improvements over time. Mm. 
Absolutely. Um, let's jump to the next topic I want to talk about. And, and that's, uh, you know, the topic is about track record. And, and my, the question I have is, um, it's a general question about track records where I think investors struggle and, and for good reason. I mean, I think it is, it can be very difficult to look at a track record and, and, and make a meaningful uh, assessment of um, how will this manager perform going forward? Because what I'm looking at here is an evolution of models, of trading strategies, um, and, and how do I know um, what, what it will look like in the future? So with that in mind, how should people look at your track record when they look at such a long track record? How should they read that to begin with? I, I think uh, one, of the, one of the qualities of having a longer track record is that it indicates that you've survived. Sure. Now, I'm not, there, there are people that survive because they're lucky and people that survive because they're skillful. Yeah. Um, so I, I, I freely admit, excuse me, it's often hard to judge between the two. I would <laughs> like to think that we've survived because of some sort of persistence and clarity in what we're trying to accomplish and some sort of uh, something interesting in the strategy that has allowed it to, over the course of time, do a pretty good job of what we set out to do at the very beginning. We really did say to our initial investors, we are going to be negatively correlated to everything else you have. We are not going to trend follow. We are probably not going to have the highest sharp ratio, but we probably will be very, very beneficial to your portfolio over big market cycles, not every year, but when you really need us, you're very likely to see us mm. be there. And that has been the case all the way through. So I think maybe one way to evaluate it is consistency to message and consistency to, go, to the mission of the, of the company. Mm. I think obviously firms improve over time. So... I believe, for example, in our own tracker, we had a very, very tough time from 9 to 12. We did not, we completely underestimated the impact of QE and the change in investor psychology from bad news is bad to bad news is actually great because it's more, it, it, it indicates more QE is coming and that's fantastic. And it took us a long time to balance and frankly, to figure out how to balance the negative correlation that we people had bought us for and we were here to provide with the fact that we had a market that rallied, you know, it's probably up 300% or something almost since the, uh, since the low yeah, tick. Definitely. And we had to find a better way of doing it that wasn't as costly. So over the course of time, I think our strategy really has improved. We certainly feel like we have a lot more sophistication in our algos, let's say, doing our, and executing our strategy for a low cost. We have a lot more sophistication and diversity of models that we employ. And most importantly, I think when you look at us quantitatively, it's very, very clear that we're providing at least as much downside protection as we'd ever provided before. But over the last two years, you know, we had a plus 30% equity year last year. We're up uh, pretty strongly this year, too. And our models are doing, a, I think, a very, very good job of making money Last year, almost nine or so, and this year it's about 14, I guess, on, on the year, or 13, um, for diversified and more for optimal. But we're doing that with the same negative correlation that we've always had. So a combination of, is the manager continuing to do what they said they were going to do, both on a mission and more uh, 
top-level basis and also quantitatively. Can you identify quantitatively that the manager really is doing it too? That, that's one way to look at it. Yeah. I think performance, however, for better or for worse, it's completely non-predictive. I always tell people where it mm -hmm. says at the bottom, past performance is not necessarily indicative. You should just cross that out and say completely <laughs> unindicative of future performance. Sure. And if you then begin your allocation process at that point, well, the question is, well, what do you have left? If you can't use performance, what can you use? But actually, there are a few things you can use. You can use correlation. You can use performance in certain shock events. Does it... Do, does the manager tend to capture trend? Okay, well, then the manager is a trend follower. Does the manager tend to capture rises and realize volatility? Well, they're probably doing that kind of strategy. You can look more carefully and just say, well, these are the factors that are driving the program. Do I want these factors in my, in, in my portfolio? Do I need these factors? And maybe then you have to look at longevity and the process itself and cost and things like that. But you might as well just throw out the mean in the, in the sharp ratio. The standard deviation, volatility probably has some consistency. And correlation, I think, is very, very predictable. Um, but mean, forget it. And I think what most people finally realize is picking managers, just like picking individual trading strategies, is a really, really hard job. And it's almost impossible to beat a low-cost, diversified mix Galen Burkhardt of New Edge, uh, now of Coex, actually showed this beautifully quantitatively in a paper that I love to give people called Superstars versus Teamwork. Right. And I, I alluded to it before, but I think it, is, it captures the fundamental difficulty of allocating to managers. The last two years of Sharp Ratio are actually worse than chance at helping you predict the future. Mm. Very interesting. Now, I picked up somewhere that kind of your general philosophy that you talk about is Ready to learn more about the world's top traders? Go to toptradersunplugged.com and sign up to receive the full transcripts of the first 10 episodes of the show and visit the show notes where you can find useful links to other amazing resources. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged.